So we're kind of picking up from where we left off a couple weeks ago, and let me just remind you of the story of what was going on. There's this scene where Jesus and his disciples are kind of huddled together. Some things have just happened. One of those things that happened was that, that their friend, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was just beheaded and killed. So that's sitting very heavy on their hearts in that moment. The disciples had just been sent out two by two by Jesus to go out and teach and heal in the villages around them. And so they come back from that experience. And just like any time we go out on the road and minister, you know, there's an exhaustion that comes with that. And so Jesus recognizes, man, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're worn out here. We need to get some rest. And so he says, we're going to get in this boat. We're going to go to the other side of the lake and hopefully kind of get away from it all. And we looked at the scene of what happened is the crowds and their need and their demand, they race ahead and they're, they're waiting for him on the shore, thousands of them. And they get there and Jesus teaches them and then he feeds them in this miraculous way. And by the end of that day, I, I have to imagine that Jesus and his disciples are just exhausted. I mean, just spent. And so that's kind of where we're going to pick the story up today. Let's see what happens next. We're going to start in verse 45, chapter 6. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So look at the timeline here, folks, okay? Because I kind of sat down and started putting the, the pieces of this puzzle together a little bit. So they feed the crowd... And then it says Jesus dismisses the crowd, and the disciples get in the boat. So if I'm just going to be generous and say, let's just say maybe it's 10 p.m., and I think it probably was earlier than that, that they get in the boat, okay, to paddle across. And remember, they're wiped out, okay? And I looked up the Sea of Galilee is where they were at. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, okay? So in good weather, 12 strong guys, probably ought to be able to row across that thing in maybe two or three hours if everything's going okay, all right? But we see that the weather was not good at all. (laughs) How bad was it? Verse 48 says that that shortly before dawn, when Jesus comes out to them, they're still out in the middle of the lake, okay? So if shortly before dawn was maybe 5 a.m., 6 a.m., we're looking at at least seven or eight hours out in that lake, with the wind blowing and the waves beating against them and they're just straining at the oars and they haven't slept all night long. Can you imagine their mental state in that moment? I mean, this is like Navy SEAL training, okay? They're trying to break you down here. And if I was one of those people, I would be so frustrated and angry and short with everybody in the boat and thinking, Jesus, oh, I'm so frustrated with you. Why'd you put us in this thing? Why'd you get us out here? Now let's pause that scene for a moment. And I want to pay attention to some very interesting uh, points and, and some things that Mark puts in this account that he reveals to us. First of all, look back at verse 45. Who put them in the boat? Jesus. 
right? It says that he made them get in the boat. He made them. Who waited for several hours to come and rescue them? Jesus, right? This is like Sunday school. Just say Jesus. We'll just keep this conversation going here, okay? So was this in any way the disciples' fault? No. No, the answer is not Jesus there. It's no, okay? It's not their fault. Jesus wasn't bailing them out of some mistake that they'd made. It wasn't like they weren't rowing hard enough or they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, half of them were fishermen. They could handle themselves out there. They actually did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Even though what they probably wanted to do when the crowds left was just lay down on the ground and just sleep. They didn't care where. They were just so tired. But they obeyed him and they got in the boat and they were in this mess because of their obedience. Life got hard because they, because they listened to Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? I think a lot of times we're under this assumption, well, if we're doing what Jesus wants us to do and, and we're being faithful and obedient, then life's going to turn out great. Like, shouldn't he reward us for that? It's like Jesus orchestrated this whole thing. For some reason, Jesus needed these guys to be out on that water in the midst of that storm, going nowhere at the end of their rope to to teach them something. And so through this account, one of the things we see about the way of Jesus is the way of Jesus isn't to avoid hardship. It's to learn something through and shape our character through it. There was something that Jesus needed his disciples to learn. And let's make this personal for a moment. I need you to, if you can, in your own life, go back to a time where maybe you were serving in ministry or helping other people out. You were trying to do good works for Jesus, and you were just kind of up against it, man. I mean, you were just worn out and exhausted doing all this good stuff. And what I'd love for you to do is just kind of close your eyes and and just kind of remember that time as hard or as painful as it might have been, or maybe you're in that time right now. And I want you to think about what emotions and feelings and thoughts were present in your life while that was going on, while you were doing exactly what you thought God told you to do, and it was just kicking your butt. What were some of the emotions that you were feeling? Some of you just share some things that were going through your heart and mind during that time. Don't fall asleep on me. You can open your eyes now. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. I want to quit. Okay. Yeah. What else? Sadness? Were you? Is this you? Why? Yeah, maybe you, do, you, do, you think you should be feeling something different than you are, right? Doing this stuff should be yielding a different experience than it's yielding, okay? What else? Let's get, let's get raw here, folks. <laughs> I'm not enough, okay? So maybe it's my fault that things are go, aren't going this way or I've gotten myself into this situation. Yeah. What's that? I'm sorry. 
abandonment, okay? Being a feeling abandoned by God? Okay, feeling abandoned by God. Abby, did you have something? Oh, right here. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, saying to God, hey, don't you know who I am here? Like, I'm a big deal. I'm Dave freaking Hind, right? (laughs) How dare you make life difficult on me? Yeah. Thanks, thanks for sharing. (laughs) In his sermon on this passage, This other pastor named Paul Tripp, he made this statement. have a slide up here. God will take you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. I'll let you read that again. So just on a personal note, I didn't sign up for this whole church planter thing. It was not like my career aspiration to do this. Um, and so over the course of the last 10 years when, you know, you're doing ministry and being a pastor and things get difficult and people's lives get difficult and you're kind of feeling like you're out there rowing and going nowhere and getting beat up. And I mean, there's been times where I've just kind of had a conversation with God where I've just been like, hey, remember, like, this is your idea, right? I just said okay, and I'm trying to do the best I can. But listen, can you just lighten up on me a little bit? Can you calm some of these storms down and just make it a little bit easier for me? Because I'm not sure I can handle this. But in the midst of that, what I do know is that my character has been shaped more by being in this role that I didn't necessarily choose, God chose for me, than if I'd have just kind of chose my own path, my own way to go about following him. So he took me to some places to achieve some things in me that I probably couldn't have done on my own. And that pastor, Paul uh, Tripp, said the Bible calls this grace. And it's a grace of refinement. And an often uncomfortable grace that exactly, that, that's exactly what we need not necessarily what we want. And we have to remember that as God's children, he is very intentional and purposeful about where he's trying to take us. His goal is to make each one of us into the image of his son. And he is relentless in that pursuit because he wants us to be his ambassadors, his light in this world and show people Christ, give them a taste of the kingdom by making us like his son. Philippians 1.6 is one of the great verses that we talk about that with, right? Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God is constantly trying to close the gap between our way and the Jesus way. And desperately not wanting us to settle for some middle ground some counterfeit expression of this life that he came for us to experience. He wants us to have the fullest life. And it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always feel like he has our best intentions in mind when we're out in the middle of the water and we're rowing and we're exhausted and we're frustrated 
and all the other morons in the boat with us aren't helping us at all, right? It's hard for us to imagine in those times in our life some of the worst moments where we feel like, God, I'm doing what you asked me to do, that God is being gracious towards us by allowing the difficulty to come, sometimes even sending the difficulty to us. When incoming freshmen come up to Central High School and decide to join my team, the foolish children that do this, and they come to summer training for the first time with the high school kids, and all they have is their middle school running experience, or no experience at all. And then they come and they find out that Coach Miller really expects them to work really hard. And they get in a few weeks and they realize, I'm running more than I ever have run And then he's asking me to lift some weights and do these ab exercises and these glute things that make my butt be on fire. And I have to do it really early in the morning, five or six times a week, and I'm sore and I'm tired and I want to sleep in. And all my other friends are having sleepovers and drinking pop and eating, you know, whatever. And some of them don't want to work as hard as I know they need to. But everything I do is out of compassion for them. Because when the calendar turns to September, four months down the road, and they step on the line for that first race, I want them to feel prepared. And I want them to feel proud of what they achieve. And because I care about them, I won't let them settle for some shortcut to getting in really good shape. But I'm pretty sure that none of them leave those mornings thinking, man, Coach Miller, he is so compassionate. I mean, he just loves me so much that he makes me work hard because he just wants to see me do good. What a compassionate and kind man he is. Nobody's ever said that, actually. They've called me Hitler to my face, but never compassionate. So let's get back to our story. So after Jesus demands that the disciples get in the boat and go into the storm, it says that he goes up on a mountainside to pray. And we know because the story tells us that he can see them, because he's God, from the shore out there in the middle of the storm doing what they're doing, straining at the oars. And so my guess is is that Jesus is praying for them. And he's praying more than anything that whatever lesson it is that he hopes that they'll attain through this experience, that they're going to get it, that their hearts would be open, that they wouldn't miss what it is he's trying to show them here. And by the way, he does that for all of us as well, constantly. He purposely leads us to challenging places, and then he prays for us. And how we'll respond to his compassionate training of our hearts. I want you to flip your Bibles over, just keep them there and mark, keep a finger there, and flip over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, page 787. It's one of my all-time favorite chapters in Scripture. I want you to look at Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. It says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Then look over to verse 34. 
a couple sentences in there. It says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So there's this picture of the Trinity at work. God is training our hearts, and the whole time, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, is, they're praying for us during that time, praying that they would that we would be faithful, that we would stand up under the tests and the trials, that we would be shaped by that refining fire of God and turned into these people who are just champions for Christ in this world. We have this compassionate team of advocates, the Bible says, that are constantly praying for us. Constantly. And so even though we might feel alone, or like we want to quit, we have to remember that those guys, they're, they're in it, man. When you feel alone, God and the Spirit and Jesus, they are praying for you and they're pulling for you. But Jesus' compassionate way for the disciples doesn't end with, well, I'll go up on the mountainside and pray for you, like sometimes ours does. That's a nice little phrase that sounds good that we like to drop from time to time. Oh, hey, I'll pray for you. And his compassionate way isn't about removing the difficulty. Because if that were the case, he would have just stood on the shore and just said, hey, be still to the waves and the wind, probably a lot earlier in the night than he did. No, in his perfect timing, which, by the way, is usually a lot longer than we think we can bear, he walks out on the water because he wants to do something in the disciples' hearts. He wants to do something in our hearts. And he's hoping that his presence will kind of calm their worries down a little bit, but it kind of does the opposite. It actually freaks them out because it doesn't make sense to them that Jesus would be walking on the water. It must be a ghost then. And when I read that, I wonder, I wonder how many times Jesus has tried to show up in my life and I've missed him because I wasn't expecting him to come the way he did. And I wonder how many times I've missed the people that God has sent because I wasn't expecting that person to show up and encourage me or challenge me or confront me or love me. Verse 50 says, because they all saw him and were terrified. Why? I mean, hadn't they seen him show up in some pretty crazy ways before? I mean, haven't we? When we get to those hard moments in our life and we're out there and we're straining at the oars and we're paddling our little hearts out and we're exhausted and frustrated and surrounded by these people that aren't helping us, where do our hearts and minds go? I mean, for the disciples, it could have just gone back like 12 hours, right? Jesus just showed up and fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, a little bit before that, he sent us out. We'd never done any of this stuff. We started healing people and casting demons out of people, and we didn't know we could do that. A little bit before that, he raised a girl, a little girl from the dead. Why are we shocked when Jesus walks on the water? Where do we go in life? Do we go back to the times when Jesus was faithful, that prayer that he answered, that miraculous way he showed up in our life? Remember when he did that? Or do we go to, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to show up? 
Or do we panic? Do we fear? Do we get anxious? Do we worry? Are we stubborn? Do we compare our circumstances to other people's circumstances and bemoan where we are? And what do we preach to ourselves in those moments? I read an interesting comment this week that said that we are our greatest preachers to, to ourselves, right? You come and you listen to me 30, 45 minutes. You probably only listen about half the time I talk, so 15 to 20, okay? Once a week. But you are your preacher to yourself the rest of the time. Multiple times a day. You are telling yourself something about who God is and who you are and what you believe about the gospel. And so in those moments in your life, who is God for you? What is the gospel to you? What are you preaching to yourself? Many things about the disciples' circumstances had remained the same. The wind was still blowing when it gets towards dawn and Jesus makes a move. The wind's still blowing. The waves are still bobbing. They're still turning at the oars, going nowhere. The only thing that's changed is that Jesus enters the scene. And how does he respond when he sees them terrified? Does he say, hey, idiots, it's me. Who else is going to be out here walking on the water, right? Jeez, we've been over this so many times. I'm so sick of you. No, he says this in his compassionate way. He says, take courage. Guys, it's, it's I. Don't be afraid. And what all is wrapped up in that statement when he says, it is I, what is he hoping that that will do in them? Who is I? Tell me. What? Yeah, but what does he represent? What is he capable of? He's, he's all-powerful. What else? He's what? Compassionate. He's what else? He's a savior. He's all-knowing. He's gracious. He's kind. He's generous. He's more than enough. He's sufficient. That Jesus is here. And sometimes we need the storm to see the glory. Sometimes we need the storm to see the glory. Because when things are going okay in life, sometimes we miss the glory of God. And in the storm, rolling, rowing with all of our might and going nowhere, we realize our need and our inability to solve our problems in our own best efforts. But it isn't enough. It isn't enough that Jesus was praying for them, that Jesus came near them, or even spoke encouragement to them. Because it's what he does next that exemplifies the compassionate way of Jesus. Back in Mark 6, verse 51, it says this. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. 
And they were completely amazed. And a couple of weeks ago, I was reading that passage just in my own personal time with God. And for whatever reason, when I got to that verse, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, man. And I know that I've read that like, I don't know how many times, hundreds of times. But it had never hit me like it did that morning. That Jesus got in the boat with them. Because he didn't have to. I mean, he could have just got in there and just calmed the storm and said, hey, everything's going to be cool. I'll see you in a few minutes. Just keep paddling. But he knew, man, they need me. <laughs> They're exhausted. Even if I calm the storm, I don't, their arms are probably going to give out. I don't even know if they can row across. He got into the boat with them. The same Jesus who had on one hand, kind of looks like Coach Miller that sends them out on this exhausting excursion to try to develop some character in them is the same amazingly tender Savior who later on, when they've had enough, gets in the boat with them and says, I'm here, it's I. And folks, that is one of the major themes throughout the Bible. While humanity is constantly filled with anxiety and worry and fear. God again and again reminds his people, do not fear, for I am with you. And doesn't our entire perspective change when we get this sense that people are in it with us? I mean, we could be doing the crappiest task you could think of. (laughs) Cleaning toilets whatever, but all of a sudden, if a couple friends come over and do it with you, that thing that by yourself sounded like death, all of a sudden kind of becomes fun, right? That's kind of the theory behind Young Life Camp, right? You're going to clean these toilets all month, but your friends are going to be here, right? And, And the task hasn't changed, but your perspective has, because all of a sudden now you're laughing and, and, and you're just, the time is flying because you've you got people with you. I remember when we started, we were in the process of starting Wellspring. And there were a segment of people out in town that we knew through Young Life or different things. And, you know, we'd tell them about, hey, we're going to start this church. And people would be like, oh, yeah, man, when you get it started, let me know, man. I'll come for sure. And I remember, like, that was never encouraging. <laughs> I was just like, do you understand that like, if people don't get on board now, there may never be a church for you to come to someday? Like, We need people now, right? Not when all the hard work's done. And then there were the people who were in it with me. When there was no building, when there was no church service, when it was just kind of a vision and an idea and a lot of passion... There was Dave and Karen Hind and Devin and Stacy Kearns and Josh and Erica Alban and Nick and Megan Codeman and Bill and Stephanie Burr and Rich Fox and Jason Hinckley and John Goolsby. And every time they got on the boat with me and they showed up to serve and to pray and to dream. They were grace to me, and they were compassion to me, and they were Jesus to me because I was worried. 
and I was afraid, and I was scared. And I'm so glad that those people didn't just say, well, this is just too hard, Bob. Just, let's, let's just do something else, man. This is, this is crazy. The compassionate way of Jesus isn't to rescue people from adversity because sometimes it's, it's God-ordained adversity that he wants to put us through to shape our character. And his compassionate way doesn't stop with prayers or encouragement or being near someone but is exemplified in that last detail of the story, we get in the boat with them. When our friends are tired and our friends are terrified, we bring them the calming peace of Jesus through our presence. Christ in me, so that I can be Christ for you. That's compassion. And as we come to the table, we have a very tangible opportunity to experience Christ in us. Reminding us that, that he went a long way to save us. And that he demands that we go a long way to help save others as well. Right? Paul said, I became many things to many people so that many would be saved. Guys, we have a responsibility through our connection and our intimacy with Christ, to be filled up, to be encouraged, to be here and excited on Sunday morning to go out into the places where there are people that are hurting and broken, those lost crowds of people that you're around every day that are sheep without a shepherd, and you show compassion to them. And you don't just pray for them and be encouraging and invite them to church. That's all nice. You get in the boat with them. And when Jesus went out on the lake, he was getting beaten up by the storm too. He wasn't dry when he got in the boat. You can't keep your life tidy. You can't wash your hands and hope that it doesn't get messy. It's gonna be messy. It's gonna be hard. That's what getting in the boat's all about. We have a savior that did it for us and we're called to do it for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to the communion table. God, and we just... Um, we see your compassionate way, and sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes we feel like, God, I'm doing what you told me to do, and why is life turning out like this? But Lord, we trust your goodness. We trust your desire to, to shape our character so that we might know you more, so we might experience life to the full. God, we're all clinging to some idols that you're trying to get us to let go of some ways of operating that aren't healthy, that aren't getting us to the places we thought they would get, that are robbing us of joy. We're caught up in fear and worry and anxiety about things we can't control, and it's stealing life from us and others around us. And God, we are like those desperate and hungry crowds on the shore. God, we need you. God, we are like those disciples out on the lake paddling and exhausted and frustrated and angry. And God, we need your presence. Help us to recognize you when you come and you show up in ways we don't expect. Thank you for the friends that have been there for us. God, help us to be those friends to others. God, I pray that we would just silence our hearts right now and just come before you and just lay our souls bare and just receive this gift of the bread and the wine this morning to remind us of your sacrificial love for us.